United States Senator Pat Toomey is known as a leading voice on money matters, according to the Philadelphia Inquirer. I recently sat down with Pat. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Welcome to Brews and Views. I'm Matt Briette, president of Commonwealth Partners Chamber of Entrepreneurs, and uh, I'm in Harrisburg catching U.S. Senator Pat Toomey on a whirlwind uh, across the state, I think. Uh, glad to catch up with you here, Senator. Thanks for having me, Matt. Good to be here. Well, I'm glad uh, we got some time to sit down and chat, and um, Brews and Views, we like to talk about uh, how people uh, grew up, those influences in life, uh, um, how they ended up in politics, and then we'll get to the nitty-gritty of, you know, I guess, rank punditry on, on right. the politics of the sure. day. So uh, Providence, Rhode Island, uh, to me central, right? It looked like yeah. you were like half the population there. Uh, with the- My immediate family was half the population <laughs> of Rhode Island. That's right. Uh, born in Providence, but but actually raised in East Providence, uh, okay. a, a little uh, town just across the river from Providence. And uh, yeah, big family. I was one of six kids. I was the third of six. And um, great childhood, um, blue-collar working class. My dad uh, was a a union worker. He installed electrical cable in um, the underground conduits that brought electrical power to, you know, a new development or a building Mm -hmm. or whatever it was. Worked for the electric utility for, uh, gosh, at least 30 years. And um, my mother was a part-time secretary at our parish, at our church. And, uh, yeah, uh, grew up... uh, in a family with three boys and three girls, uh, the six of us were born over the course of eight years. Okay, um, some Irish twins so, in there. Yeah, that, yeah, yeah. There's a lot of Irish <laughs> twins along the way. What the most amazing thing uh, to my kids is the fact that uh, the eight of us managed to get by with one bathroom. Wow, and that's you know that wasn't that unusual in those and, days. And our kids complain about uh, having one to share with <laughs> yeah, another. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah, so you you were in the middle of, of six I, kids. Yeah, I'm, I was the third of okay. six. Yeah, okay. I have two older sisters, and then three boys in a row, and then the baby of the family is a girl. Now, were your parents uh, politically involved or engaged at all? Uh, it... um, well, my parents uh, felt very strongly that they had a uh, obligation to vote, mm-hmm. but they were not active in politics. Okay. They, that was just not part of their life. Uh, but they made sure we voted. And when we, each of us, uh, is, you know, in turn turned 18, uh, was expected that we would do our duty. And they didn't attempt to tell us uh, for whom to vote, mm-hmm. but they expected us mm-hmm. to vote. And with your uh, Catholic background, was that meant that, uh, you know, Catholic check, Democrat check, uh, Northeast uh, check? You know, so it's interesting. Um, my my dad very much uh to vote Democrat, uh-huh. you know, yeah, I, I think his entire life, I don't think he ever voted for a Republican in his life. Uh-huh. And I always kidded him about uh, the fact that long ago I moved to Pennsylvania, I spared him a moral <laughs> dilemma of what I was going to do with the voting booth. Or having uh, your vote canceled was, out, right? But yeah. that was always okay. a joke because he came down and he helped, he volunteered on my campaigns, he always helped. My, my mother was um, independent, she never registered, uh, as it, and to this day I think she's uh, registered as independent or in Rhode Island, I'm not sure exactly how they do it, um, but she's not affiliated with either major party. Mm-hmm. And I think she usually votes Republican. Okay. My mother is okay. uh, pretty concerned. You know, my but dad secret was, ballot still is there. Yeah. So yeah. <laughs> um, you know, we grew up in a, in a household that was traditional and it was culturally conservative. Mm-hmm. Um, economically, not so much. My dad was a union member and he was pretty much, you know, 
thought along the lines of uh, Democrats uh, on on labor and economic issues. But even uh, that, I suspect, uh, uh, during that time, the Democratic Party fiscally was uh, probably uh, closer to the Republican Party yeah, today. I, I mean, a, a, a Democrat uh, in Congress who really thoroughly reflected, say, my dad's views a, a, as of the 1980s mm-hmm. would be a centrist Republican today. Mm-hmm. And so, no question. And so uh, you, you didn't grow up in a politically active family. Uh, where did the political bug come in? Is this uh, in Rhode Island or does this come later on in life? Uh, uh, it was just a lapse of judgment. Matt. <laughs> you know, uh, everything was going good. And No, uh, so I'll tell you what happened was, um, you know, I, um, I graduated from high school in 1980, right? So it was the late 70s. Mm-hmm. Jimmy Carter was the president for the four years that I was in high school. And we were having a national debate that in some ways we had all over again under Obama, in my view. And it was about whether the country was in just a state of permanent decline and whether it was time we just accepted the fact that, you know, the United States in the 1970s, 200 years after its foundation, pretty much run its course. Mm -hmm. You know, at the time, the Soviet Union was the other great power on the planet and the convention and, and look like it wasn't going away oh right? absolutely no not way. yeah and what my history teachers and social studies teachers what they taught was okay so we have two different systems you know ours isn't any better hmm. than theirs i mean look at theirs uh, you know elevates equality to such a high level and it's uh, you know such a wonderful wonderful aspiration and sure they do some things that we don't like but we do think you know there was this moral equivalence mm-hmm. And as a, as a still uneducated and a young, uh, you know, teenager and early adult, still formulating a sort of philosophy and a political philosophy and ideas about life, it still struck me as objectionable and even offensive to equate a system predicated on freedom with a system predicated on denying, systematically denying freedom. Mm-hmm. Whatever else the two systems may do and achieve, that struck me as a pretty stark moral contrast, right? One that respects the freedom of the individual and the other that denies the freedom. And this is, you're just thinking so this I'm through? So I'm thinking yeah, this okay. through. Uh-huh. You know, I'm, I've got a liberal teacher in high school, nice guy. Sure. We got along great. Um, but he, you know, he was trashing the United States of America mm. every day of the week, and it was offensive to me. And mm-hmm. you know, and so so I started kind of thinking, <laughs> well, I'm not buying this stuff. So then I go to college. Right, I'm at Harvard. I'm an undergrad, and Ronald Reagan's elected president in the fall of my freshman year. And I was shocked. I mean, he's ridiculed on case. He's, he's treated like he's beneath contempt, you mm-hmm. know. And and I'm thinking, wait a minute. I like everything this guy stands <laughs> for. I like what he's saying. And then, of course, after a short period of time. So did you get to vote for him then? I did. Uh, my first vote okay. for, for in a presidential election. In fact, I think my first ever vote cast mm-hmm. was in the 1980 presidential election. Um, and I voted for Reagan. And and then, of course, what happened? The economy takes off. You know, mm-hmm. I, I got to graduate at a time when the economy was booming. Inflation was coming down. Markets were rallying. Because Reagan knew what we needed. Mm-hmm. We needed to get away from the overregulation. We needed to lower taxes. We needed a sound monetary policy. And he provided that leadership and global leadership. He realized that we should challenge 
a, a morally bankrupt communist dictatorship, mm -hmm. and he was willing to do it. So, so you're understanding this. You're you're in college, which right. I suspect was uh, fairly critical of the president at that time. No, that, more no? than cri beyond critical. <laughs> it was like he wasn't worthy of of our contempt. Okay. Okay. You know, yeah, no, it was, it was, it was that bad. So did that uh, cause you to kind of solidify yeah, your thinking yeah, even for Yeah, that's, yeah, it did. So, but still it was in developmental mm -hmm. stage. Um, and then my, my first job was in finance. I moved to New York and I got a job in finance and it was, I was trading securities and I learned about how markets work and how um, economic incentives work and, and how markets behave in a, in a, rational fashion based on the information available at the time and and I, I just it, it started to click mm -hmm. and I and I understood the continuum of, of personal freedom and how central that was to my um, value system and and the intersection I suspect of government and economics and the role that that plays yeah, yeah. and and how you know government is really, you know, government systematically diminishes freedom. Mm -hmm. Now, for in some ways, you know, that's okay. Putting a speed limit on a on a crowded road is is a good idea mm -hmm. because it keeps us all safer. So you're not free to drive at 100 miles an hour down Main Street, mm -hmm. um, and I'm okay. So uh, so <laughs> don't get me wrong. I'm not an anarchist, and I'm not. Thanks uh, for clarifying. Yeah, I don't want to be clear. But let's also be honest that every every rule, every regulation, every law does also limit freedom and I'm generally in favor of more freedom I think uh, uh, for a variety of reasons um, so so that experience um, helped uh, to um, further my understanding so are you paying attention uh, to politics then is that is that an interest not, as you, not much is it not, more from the economic side yeah, of what's more happening? learning about economics uh -huh. and um, so, so you leave you uh, graduate from Harvard right. uh, yeah. and uh, so what where do you go from from Harvard I go to New York Okay. And I worked for a big bank, mm -hmm. and I uh, worked for two of them, actually. Um, first one for a couple of years, then moved and um, set up a subsidiary for a British merchant bank in New York. And we traded global securities. We had folks um, in London and Tokyo. Our, our subsidiary headquarters was in New York. And, you know, it was a great education for me in the capital markets, uh, learning about securities, learning about global economics, and... Um, Great experience, great education for um, you know a young kid in his twenties. Mm -hmm. So, so for folks that don't fully understand uh, the banking industry and securities, all of these things that are blamed uh, in large part for economic collapse of of two thousand and eight. How do you explain some of these things? I mean, you were someone who was on the inside. Um, what's your explanation of what really caused, and I, and I think it's probably multifaceted. There's no yeah, one yeah. entity to blame, uh, but I know you wrote a book, uh, yeah, yeah. talking about some of these things. Is there, is it, do you see a clear path of, uh, from what you experienced, um, just from the, 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 the banking side of things that contributed to, uh, our economic well, challenges? Well, let me, let me put it this yeah. way. I mean, I think the financial crisis, uh, I think the causes, and there were several, but the dominant causes were the failure of government. First of all, we had monetary policy that was way too easy, mm -hmm. way too loose. We had um, one measure of that is the Fed kept interest rates below the rate of inflation. That's a very unnatural, unnaturally low rate. That's super easy money. That makes it too tempting to borrow 
think about it, mm-hmm. you can borrow at an interest rate that's lower than inflation, then you should borrow all you can and invest in anything that's because right. whatever you're investing in is going to appreciate in value faster and and mm-hmm. generate more income than the cost of the borrowing. So it it almost guarantees you're going to have bubbles. And what did we have? Mm-hmm. We had a real estate bubble. Mm-hmm. And it, you never know where it's going to show up, and you never know when it's going to pop, but we had a serious real estate bubble. And we remember reading about this, right? People who were buying houses just to flip them. People yep. were buying houses they couldn't begin to afford, but so what? And then they Three just months later, away. you're going to sell it for another hundred grand <laughs> yeah. more than you paid for it, so why not? And this was a great party for a long time until it wasn't. Mm-hmm. And when it collapsed, you had um, massive defaults on mortgages. You had people who just weren't going to pay off their mortgage, and they didn't. Mm-hmm. Compounding the problem, you had government um, laws and regulations requiring that Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, the big, giant, government-sponsored enterprises, requiring them to lend money to people who couldn't afford it. Mm-hmm. They, were, they were required to make a certain percentage of their loans, for instance, to very low-income people. Well, a lot of very low-income people, if your income's that low, maybe you shouldn't borrow a lot of money because you're not going to have the means to pay it back. And yet, that, that lending well, and is occurred. This the fu- yeah, and is this the fault of the banks uh, for no, making these no, loans? No, uh, no, yeah. no. So banks got involved yeah. in this, right? So yeah. it was like this was a way they could make money. Uh, banks um, got too leveraged. You know, Lehman Brothers, for instance, was mm-hmm. a, an investment bank. Um, had a huge securities portfolio, very little capital, way too much leverage. So they got themselves in a very risky position. So there were definitely errors made there. But if you ask, you know, what was the, the root cause of this problem? It was a real estate bubble and bubbles pop. And it, mm-hmm. this one popped combined with government policies that caused the extension of credit to people who were not in a position to repay. And when those roosters came home to roost, it was it was really ugly. So do you think we've learned uh, those lessons uh, from the past, that government policy isn't creating other bubbles elsewhere? Well, this is one of the reasons yeah. I've been very critical of the Fed in recent years. I understand why the Fed took emergency measures to provide liquidity and to take interest rates down to zero at the time we had a crisis. Right? Their, their mm-hmm. worry was we could just have a collapse of our financial system. So they just made money very readily available. You could literally borrow for free as a, as a financial institution. Okay, I get that when you're in a dire crisis, when you're in an emergency. Um, eight years later, we still had virtually zero interest rate. I mean, the crisis was mm-hmm. long behind right. us. And we not only had this period, this very long extended period of artificially low interest rates, but we also had a period in which the Fed was going out and just throwing money into the economy like never before. They called it quantitative easing. Mm -hmm. It was a program of a series of massive purchases of bonds by the Fed from uh, financial institutions that held the bonds on a scale that no one ever even imagined before. This has never never happened before in history. And to this day, we don't know how this story ends, right? The Fed has now finally been on a course to normalizing interest rates and monetary policy. We are not there yet. I hope this ends well, but um, it's, you know, could we be in danger of other bubbles? Yeah, Mm -hmm. Yeah, we could be. Well, let's get back to your story. So you okay. end up in New York City working in the financial right. uh, in- industry. Uh, what next? I mean, get us to pe- how do we? Yeah, how yeah. do you end up in Pennsylvania? So I, well, there was Valley, a, right? a year in Hong Kong along the way, but okay. uh, my brothers and I went into the restaurant business, bar and restaurant business. Okay. We owned. A, we we decided uh, 
we had some ideas for some concepts similar to what we'd seen in other places. We were, we were very um, bullish on the Lehigh Valley as a good location for us to locate. And, um, were your brothers there already? My, or was my, this, okay. my brothers were in the industry, in the business. Okay. And together we decided we would, they, they were working for someone else in mm-hmm. New England. And we decided we could do this. We, we, we knew we had a business model in mind. And we were looking for a good place to do it, and we thought the Lehigh Valley and, really and fits Billy the bill. Joel, uh, was popu- us. Billy Joel, he convinced us. Billy Joel convinced us. Yes. Okay. <laughs> um, no, we we looked at lots of towns that were, and and the sort of the criteria was I wanted to be within a two-hour drive of where I lived in New York, mm-hmm. and um, so this was like 1989, 1990, and um, we just we we did our homework, we did our demographic research, we looked at the competition, we said we we could make a go of this in Allentown, and so that's what we did. And um, built our business up. We had several units. Ended up with uh, our flagship restaurant in Allentown and one just like it out in Lancaster. And I'll tell you, that was another real education. I bet. When you take your, uh, <laughs> all the savings you have, you invest it in something, and you hope people Who will knows? show up. Yeah, that's you have right. no idea, right? You can build it. Uh, but, but There's no guarantee they right. will come, you know. <laughs> but uh, if you provide a good product, a good service, you know, you might uh, – it might work out. So and did you know that, hey, you're shifting from working in Manhattan type of uh, role to, I'm going to be an entrepreneur. Yeah. Uh, I'm yeah. going to have sleep more sleepless nights probably. Yeah. Doing I, that. I had spent a year in Hong Kong on a, on a consulting project, and I uh, decided that uh, when that wound up, I, I decided not to move back to New York. And we had already launched our first, um, our first business in Pennsylvania, and I decided I'm going to move to Allentown and um, expand this business with my brothers. Okay. And that's what we did. And so uh, at what point did uh, the political bug bite you? Uh, because you're, you're, we're getting closer here to 1998, yeah, uh, yeah, your first yeah. run for Congress. Uh, so 94 was a watershed year for me. Mm-hmm. So by this time, so Matt, you know me well enough to know I'm 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 a geek. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I you know, I read Heritage Foundation yes. and Cato Institute reports and stuff on Social Security's structure and its reform and its economics and tax reform. So, you know, I actually read all this stuff and uh, took a great interest. But I didn't see any opportunity to move the ball because we had Democrat-controlled Congress. Bill Clinton gets elected in 1992. Um, 1994 election comes along, and a friend of mine, really, really super nice guy, runs a small business in the Lehigh Valley, and we'd become friendly, decides to run for Congress. And... Honestly, I didn't think he had a chance. You know, he's running against a career politician who was very sharp, uh, very competent uh, Democrat who was running for re-election. And my friend had no experience whatsoever in this area. Um, but to make a long story short, uh, election night, he ends up losing the race by 471 votes. Wow. A U.S. House seat. And a t- thousands cast. Ten oh, thousand. Yeah, yeah, tens what, of, what yeah, over yeah, 100,000. Right, right. Yeah. So closest race in America. Mm. Nobody thought he had a chance. I didn't think he had a chance <laughs> just because I just assumed incumbents always win. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was a great guy, but I, I just didn't think this would work out anyway. Apparently you didn't knock on enough doors for well, him. Well, I did. Yeah. I did help a little, but not as much <laughs> as I thought I should. And so, so right. I thought, okay, this is huge though, because yeah. as you recall, Republicans took control of the House, Republicans took control of the Senate. And I thought, wow, now there's a chance to actually advance in the direction of more more economic freedom, more limited government, more fiscal discipline, the kinds of things that I think lead to prosperity and a better standard of living. So I got involved in the 96 cycle, 
with another guy that I thought had a chance to win. Good guy. He was the mayor of Bethlehem. Uh, Ken Smith is his name. He was a Republican mayor. And um, I was much more actively involved just because I, I just realized that, you know, this is a possibility. This isn't just pie in the sky. Um, and then Ken actually lost the primary. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, but the guy who won, a nice guy, um, had, had, you know, some challenges as a candidate, wasn't competitive in the general. Actually, actually I, I, let me change that. He was competitive in the general, more so than we thought. Anyway, he lost in 96. And I just decided, um, you know what? I can do this. I can do this. Okay. If I knew then what I know now, I probably wouldn't have done it because the yeah. the odds of success were extremely low. But I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so mm-hmm. I got into the race and uh, I ended up getting elected in 98. And uh, in that process, you said, look, I'm not going to be a career politician. Right. Uh, I'm going to serve three terms. Right. Uh, so you limited yourself. You won successive terms after that, uh, right. and then stepped aside uh, right. in uh, 2004. I guess it, 03 was the end of your, no, I'm sorry, end of 04. End of 04, yeah. right. Uh, so um, what does that, What made you say, all right, I'm ready to go do this again, because in 2004 you said, I'm going to take on Arlen Specter because yeah. he does not uh, represent uh, the uh, Republican values in many ways, right. uh, economically right. in particular. Yeah. And, and, and beyond, that's yeah. right. Um, so, right. So I challenged Arlen Specter in a primary in 2004 and uh, actually got quite close, right? I, I yeah. lost the race. I lost by less than two percentage points. Yeah, I think it was 17,000 votes out of a million casts. That so, sounds uh, about you've right. You've been involved in a few yeah, of those. Yeah, yeah. Very, very <laughs> close race. Uh, it was uh, probably one o'clock in the morning before we knew the outcome. Um, yeah, I was there uh, yeah. up in uh, Bethlehem, yeah, or, I guess, right. or, yeah, or nearby there. Right. Um, so... You know, the race is over. I went back to the private sector. I, I ran the club for growth, mm-hmm. uh, which was a, a great experience. Uh, I love the organization. I uh, got involved with a group of guys. We launched a bank in uh, eastern Pennsylvania, western New Jersey, and that was a great experience. I uh, was on a couple of boards, and uh, life was good. You know, it was it was good to be. But then Arlen Specter drew you back in once again. He did. Again. He did manage. Um, <laughs> and, and really, it was in 2009 and so this is post financial crisis mm-hmm. that we just talked about, mm-hmm. and of course the response of the Obama administration is to massively expand government. Right, right. when government mm-hmm. messes something up, make it bigger. And so right. that was uh, what they did. They had to remember the stimulus spending bill, yes. right? Like a trillion dollars mm-hmm. of wasted money, mm-hmm. very ill spent. Um, Senator Specter voted for that, and um, Senator Specter was supporting Obamacare, and you know supporting. Um, well, I think, and you may not remember this, uh, but I believe it was the day that the stimulus vote took place. You were actually speaking at one of our events in Philadelphia, and I believe your phone ended up blowing up with uh, that vote that I knew at that point, he's running again. Yeah, <laughs> I didn't know at that point, but uh, shortly thereafter figured it out. So yeah, the, the, uh, the short version was I just felt that this was a time when Republicans needed to unite against some really bad policy and uh, uh, try to prevent this from really, really becoming disastrous. And so I decided to run. Um, So I got in the primary, and just a few weeks later, uh, Senator Specter did a poll and discovered there was no No way he was going to win the primary. So he he left the party. Mm -hmm. (laughs) He went all the way over to the Democratic side, kind of validating my premise. Which and, then he ended up losing and uh, the then, Democratic uh, primary, right? Exactly. He, uh, of course, um, 
there were some Democrats that thought, wait a minute, you've been on the other side for 30 years and now you expect to have the nomination <laughs> of our party? Well, it doesn't work that way. And in fact, it turned out not to work that right. way for uh, Senator Specter. I had um, enough, believe it or not, uh, so much political capital from the very narrow loss in 2004 that um, I had very little opposition in 2010. Mm -hmm. I was the Republican nominee, had a very tough general election against Joe Sestak, uh, but won that by about two points. And um, so that's how I got to so the Senate. So how, how was your relationship with Senator Specter after all of that? Obviously, taking him on as a challenger um, doesn't always. But you're you're a collegial guy. You you have you're able to interact with folks who you disagree with. Uh, you're not a disagreeable. Yeah, person well, I try not regard. to. But yeah. but honestly, we didn't uh, didn't interact didn't, too much, yeah. right? He he was out of office. Right. I was in the Senate. Um, so you're not aware of the any hard feelings after that? If I, this was well, I, politics I is politics. I don't think I was on his holiday card yeah. list, but um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, we enough. just didn't we just didn't interact much. Fair enough. Well, and of course you uh, your uh, tough reelection uh, in 2016, right? Um, against Katie McGinty, and um, I think um, you uh, outperformed uh, President Trump. Both of you. Uh, winning by slim margins, uh, but right. certainly in Pennsylvania, the fifth largest state, uh, uh, biggest purple state in the country. Right. Uh, that's quite a feat uh, to pull off. I know you both did it in different uh, exactly. different ways, right. um, but I think it certainly shows that Pennsylvania is uh, the, the gateway uh, to the White House in many ways um, and in a critical state uh, in our in our country. Um, and to that, for our country, uh, things that are happening, of course, uh, you were a, a primary uh, mover of the tax reform uh, measure. How is that working for us today? Uh, do you do you give that? Uh, is it performing the way that uh, you thought it would when you were pushing this? And finally, what the package that passed? Uh, yes, uh, it's actually <laughs> outperforming um, what my expectations were. So, if you look at what we did on the business side of the tax, on the individual side, it's relatively simple. The changes. Uh, were to simply lower everybody's taxes mm -hmm. modestly, but everybody, almost everybody, got a reduction in their federal income taxes, mostly from slightly lowering marginal rates, also increasing the amount of income that you can earn that's subject to the lower rates. Well, how is it that that the narrative, the media narrative, and certainly the Democratic playbook is that well, this only went this cut taxes for the rich, that the middle class uh, didn't get any tax cuts in this. Is that just a flat-out lie, or are they using certain So it's both, yeah, right? Okay. In some cases, right, sure. there are flat-out lies, and yeah. in some cases, they use data to mislead. Mm -hmm. So, for instance, um, so the, the, the top 1% of Americans earn about 20% of all the income and pay about 40% of all the taxes in America. Mm -hmm. After we finished the tax reform, the top 1% paid a higher percentage of all the taxes than they did before. So increase from 40% to something to a little say, higher. Right. right. Okay. Now, do they pay more or less in total taxes? A little bit less because yeah. everybody pays yeah. a little bit less. Right. So sure, they got a savings. And since they pay so much in the first place, mm -hmm. a percentage of that uh, reduction, it's, it's a lot of money. But they ended up paying a bigger share than they paid before. Right. right. You know, uh, how, how, what's the right share? The top 1% who make 20% of the income what are they supposed to pay? 50%, 80%, 110% of all tax? I mean, what's what's the right number? The upper income people already pay a disproportionate share of the taxes because we have a progressive tax code. And we kept it progressive. In fact, we made it more progressive. Mm -hmm. 
everybody saves. And so the left gets pretty shrill um, whenever there's a successful person who has a tax savings. Um, I think most Pennsylvanians think it's reasonable if everybody got a reduction in their tax bill, and that's what we did. The business side is what's driving the growth, though. And what we, what we observed is, so first of all, I think it's an irrefutable fact that during the Obama years, economic growth was very feeble. The economy grew mostly after the severe recession, but at a surprisingly oh, yeah. low rate, very weak, much less than what you would normally expect. And, and folks were saying, look, this is the new normal. Yeah. Uh, don't expect the exactly kind of growth Exactly right. Larry Summers have. famously mm-hmm. coined the phrase secular stagnation. Yeah. This is like basically get used to it. This mm-hmm. is who we are. This is why I say it was. It reminded me of the 1970s mm-hmm. when we were told, look, just because Jimmy Carter's in the White House, it's not his fault. It's just yeah. the way things are. Well, that Enjoy turned, 12% uh, mortgage interest rates. Yeah, right? yeah. <laughs> and, and high unemployment yeah. and high inflation because that's just the way things are. Well, it turns out things don't have to be that way. There's a reason that the recovery was so weak under Obama, and the reason was, I think most directly, a collapse in new capital investment. And the data is very very clear. There was not a growth. There was not the kind of growth you would normally expect that we used to have in capital expenditures. If business are not investing in new plants, new equipment, new machinery, new software, new technology, if they're not making those investments, then they're not becoming more productive. Workers are not becoming more productive. You don't get pay raises. You don't have a rapidly expanding economy. Well, what could be done about that? You could change the tax code so that you create an incentive to make those kinds of investments. And so that was a big part of what drove our tax reform. We lowered the tax, uh, the income tax on business so that the return on invested capital would be higher. And we allowed a business that goes out and buys new equipment to fully deduct the cost of that purchase at the time they make the purchase rather than under the old regime where you would take many, many years to be able to deduct from your income the cost of something that you bought you know, years ago. We thought that those changes would drive a big surge in investment and would make America more competitive than the rest of the world and become a great, so- a great destination for mm-hmm. capital from around the world. That's exactly what's happened, mm-hmm. Matt. You know, capital expenditure, business investment, equipment, all of it, it's gone through the roof. And so there's a lot of new jobs being created to fulfill that demand. There's jobs being created uh, at the companies that need to use that equipment, right? You buy a new tractor, you need somebody to drive it. Mm-hmm. Um, this, I, I really think this is sustainable growth because it's not like a, a sugar high from a quick cash infusion. This is expanding the productive capacity of our economy by building new plants, new equipment, new assembly lines. So it's exactly what we had hoped for. It's been really strong, and I think it's likely to endure. Well, of course, uh, it's important, but it's at the end of the day not sufficient. We've got other challenges that are pressing on this, uh, including growing uh, deficits, debt, uh, some of the the spending side. Um, And we have to correct that. Uh, We simply can't grow our way out of a lot of the entitlements. Is there a will? I mean, this was really the first big thing that uh, President Trump accomplished. After some missteps of efforts on Obamacare, uh, are there some big things on the horizon that we uh, absolutely have to tackle that you think there's a will to uh, start to put all those other pieces, you know, of the puzzle together? Yeah, I think you put your finger on the other great challenge, right? So I, I agree. Tax reform was a 
really a central, central challenge and opportunity because if we got it right, we could have a booming economy mm-hmm. and we got it, we got it right. It's yeah. not perfect, but right. it's enormous progress and we've got the booming economy. But you're right. The other big challenge is a fundamental fiscal imbalance. The fact that we systematically spend too much money. We spend more than we can ever reasonably hope to collect. And that's being driven by the big entitlement programs, and we've got to change their structure. Uh, We don't have to change it tomorrow. We don't have to change it for anybody who's on those programs now. It's for the next generation. It's for today's 45- and 50-year-old who still has 20 or even maybe 25 years to work and the next generation. We, we have to have a different structure. It's got to keep up with, with, with the times, and the economy has to be able to keep up with it. So uh, as we sit here right now, do we have the political will to do that? No. I, I would. Yeah. I'd do it. I, I, I've offered plans repeatedly. I've, I've tried to move this ball down the field. We actually, well, it seems that the president hasn't been all that willing to tackle these entitlement programs. No, the president um, has not. Um, but I think he's open to uh, addressing these in a second term. I think he feels like there's some things that he wanted to get done in the first term first. Um, and, um, and, then, and then we've got to have that conversation. I, by the way, if Republicans continue to hold the House so that this is at least possible to have this mm-hmm. discussion— I think we should be willing to do it in the next Congress, and I'll argue that uh, to the president and everybody else. I, I don't, I don't know that I'll be <laughs> successful, but but we we do have to address the spending. Well, we know uh, that uh, you and and candidate Trump were not uh, gallivanting around the state together. You ran separate campaigns, right. and uh, um, you were not out there endorsing and and cheerleading for his presidency. Uh, but I know that uh, you have come alongside on many of his proposals. Um, and what's your assessment of the policy, Jan? We can. I, I think that you've. That's you, a dog whistle for the media and the left when it comes to his style yeah. uh, and his Twitter, right. you know, all of that. But the substance of what's happening in Washington, how would you assess uh, his presidency? The the actual policies yes. of his administration, uh, domest- let's start with domestically, have generally been excellent, right? I mean, the big priorities, what have they been? Um, getting a fantastic Supreme Court justice nominated and confirmed in Neil Gorsuch. We now have a second fantastic American in Brett Kavanaugh, who's been nominated by the president. We're going to confirm him. And meanwhile, much less widely reported, we've confirmed 24 circuit court judges. The appellate court system in our federal judiciary system is arguably the most important layer because it's the final word on the vast majority of cases. And of course, all of this transcends uh, one uh, candidates uh, term in office. Oh yeah, uh, these I mean, some of these the, are, these yeah. the, these not these appointments are for life. Yeah, you, you know, and we're we're putting forty five year old brilliant legal minds on the bench. They could very well be there for thirty more years. So that's been terrific. The president deserves tremendous credit for that. The tax reform I mentioned before, mm-hmm. I will say Congress drove that to a very large degree as well. But it's very cooperative, and it would not have been possible without President Trump. And he deserves a lot of credit for that. Um, Deregulating the wildly excessive regulation from the previous administration, that's been a joint effort, right? Some has been done by the executive branch unilaterally where they could. In other cases, we've passed legislation, but it's been cooperative, done together, 
very, very constructive for the economy. Um, so, so those are big things, and the president has done, uh, I think— How about internationally? So uh, I think it's yeah, mixed. Yeah. I think it's mixed. I think um, one thing the president doesn't get nearly the credit he deserves for is he has virtually eliminated ISIS. I mean, how much do you read about that? But, but the fact is, he changed the rules of engagement, and we rounded them up and we killed them. Mm-hmm. And these people whose life's mission was to kill as many innocent Americans as possible, they're dead now. And they're not a threat. Now, that's not completely over, and, you know, sure. there are still radical Islamists that could pop up and will, I'm sure. But ISIS was a very clear and specific threat that is almost entirely neutralized. The president deserves a lot of credit for that. Um, I think the president deserves a lot of credit for withdrawing from the uh, Iran nuclear deal or not certifying Iran, to be more precise, and putting the sanctions back on Iran. That was appropriate, I think. Um, The president, I I think to his credit, uh, decided to provide uh, defensive equipment to Ukrainians fighting for their freedom against Russia. But he has a strange blind spot for the outrageous behavior of Vladimir Putin, mm-hmm. uh, including in Ukraine <laughs> and the <laughs> annexation of Crimea and the meddling with our elections and interfering with our efforts and our allies is, in the Middle East. Is this, uh, would you say that this is where kind of the public facing of the president uh, is differing a bit from the policy agenda that's being advanced, that if uh, we are taking strong stances against Russia policy-wise, yet his rhetoric doesn't seem to match. I think there is a mismatch yeah. there. Yeah. And, you know, actions speak louder than words. So um, that that's important. Um, what about his, his uh, proposal for tariffs? I know that that's been an area of public contention, yeah. the president. How have you been able to interact with him on that? So it's it's more than a proposal, right? The president, right. They, yeah. they've, they've been implemented. <laughs> and I have been one of uh, his most outspoken critics in this space. I'll give the president all the credit in the world for when he's doing things that I think are, are right, whether it's judges, taxes, or regulation. But a trade war, I think, is very dangerous. I think the tools the president is using... In some cases, he's misusing, um, such as tariffs justified by a national security uh, argument when, in fact, Canada is not a national security threat to the United States. The Mounties are mounting. Yeah, yeah. And I'm also concerned about what the goal is, you know. So I know he wants leverage to negotiate what he considers a better deal. I'm concerned that the terms that his negotiators are pursuing make it a worse deal, you know, with respect to NAFTA, for instance. So this is an area where we've got disagreement. I do have to give the president credit for another thing, though, is he is very willing to hear from people who disagree with him. I talk to the president regularly about trade. Mm-hmm. He knows I disagree. He'll call me up sometimes, and I'll call him, and we'll talk. And, and I'm at the White House probably on average once a week meeting with the president um, about it's been a big range of topics, everything from tax reform to the, the ethanol mandates that are killing our merchant refiners, including in Philadelphia, to trade and, and tariff policy. Um, so... Um, you know, I, I, I try to be respectful and constructive, but um, I, I don't hold back. I tell the president what I think. Well, talking about being respectful and, and constructive, there seems to be a real, uh, you know, kind of an anti-Trump sentiment that um, is keeping some of that respectful and constructive cooperation that used to exist with Democrats and Republicans. It doesn't seem you're going to get very far with any Democratic uh, support on these issues. Um. You know, I think it's mixed, Matt. There's um, 
Uh, so, for instance, Senator Corker and I have legislation that would restore to Congress the authority that the Constitution gives us to establish uh, these tariffs under national security justifications. We have bipartisan support for that legislation. Um, we had bipartisan support for um, a farm bill, for instance. I didn't support it. I think there's a lot of bad policy in there. But it was very, yeah, it was a lot of the other guys. We usually get bipartisan support Yeah, for as long as you're ideas. spending enough money, exactly. <laughs> um, you know, actually restoring the appropriation process. I agree with the process, right, to do to fund the government incrementally through a series of discrete bills that can be amended and inspected rather than doing a giant omnibus $2 trillion bill in the middle of the night. Um, the actual product I haven't, I haven't liked very much, but, but that, the process has gotten better and it's bipartisan. So, so it's mixed. You yeah. know, there are cases where Democrats and Republicans are working together in Congress, and then there are areas where the polarization is just kind of crazy. Well, uh, I'm sorry I didn't bring this into the narrative, but the important part of uh, you're getting married and Chris and your three kids, because I know that that's a big part of what drives you and why you are working for a better future is, like, I've got four kids at home, yeah. and uh, there's yeah. good reason to get up and fight for these ideas. So yeah. uh, as we wrap up, I wanted to make sure I mentioned Chris. Well, I appreciate that. That's here. that's most important part of my life is my family. Uh, I've got a wonderful wife. Um, we will have been married 21 years in a few months. Uh, we, we do have three kids, two teenagers and an eight-year-old, and uh, they're all just wonderful. Uh, we're very, very blessed. And yeah, they you know they deserve to have uh, a great uh, great range of opportunities in front of them when they when they reach adulthood. Well, uh, Senator Toomey, I appreciate your joining me here on Brews and Views, and uh, I look forward to uh, seeing you do additional great things in Washington for us. Thanks very much, Matt. Great to be with you. You've been listening to Brews and Views, a production of Commonwealth Partners Chamber of Entrepreneurs. Find us on Facebook at Commonwealth Partners and follow Matt Briette at M-A-T-T-B-R-O-U-I-L-L-E-T-T-E. -T -T -E.